You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Dan Plunkett of ND, well, Magazine and Label and End of an Ear in Austin. Hello. Hey, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sure. Our pleasure. I mean, ND is one of those magazines that started in, what, 1982 and uh, wrapped up just before year 2000, right? Last issue was 1999. I think so. Yeah. You, you probably know more than me. But yeah. I think it was, <laughs> yeah. It was kind of just a slow, slow, slow closure. Cause I started a record store and there were plans to kind of keep up, but it just, you know, just the more that we got involved, it was just really hard to keep up with it. So it kind of just slowly stopped. You know? That's well, a really good run though. 17 years. Yeah. I, I I mean, you know, back when in the day in the midst of it, we we're like, we're going to get to 100 copies, you know, 100 issues. Mm-hmm. And there's a few, I think, like Jack Rabbit's, um his magazine. I think some some people have gotten pretty high numbers. And I was thinking back in the day, like those in um, Unsound and Alana magazine, there was different. I mean, Wire is still going, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But I think people had conceptions of like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to get to issue 50 or whatever. <laughs> I feel like Banana Fish might have been 18 as well, actually. Could be. If, yeah, well, maybe yeah, so. Something like that. But yeah, so what, the last issue was issue, I think, ni- 19 or 20, right? 21. I think 21. 21. There you go. And, there you go. And there was, yeah. it seemed like we had gotten halfway through 22, and then it just, there was going to be a Phil Nibbox CD. We had that part done. And I kind of just, it was just hectic. And like, I think we just like, it was half nearly done, but we just couldn't get it out. You know, it's just like, Oh, we just got to fold it. People were moving and things, you know, just got disarray. Well, what was the process in those very early days of assembling a magazine? Well, it, it was me and I'd always have a couple of friends like roommates. So a lot of, a lot of coffee and staying up late and writing letters and, um, and, I mean, yeah, that was basically it. And then just kind of learning the print. You would look at other magazines, like how do you make it look nicer um, typeset? I mean, everything was done on a typewriter or we would go to a print shop and, you know, print out little text, that kind of thing. Well, the the look of the magazine is very distinct. And professional looking. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so what was that? What were some of the influences for the actual design? Now, I believe Michael Northam was part of the design. Yeah. Michael came in. I remember he started, he was doing photography. His girlfriend at the time, Amanda, did drawing and photography and they were really excited. And so we kind of looked at more design element. And then he got a job like at a uh, preprint play. So he was like, oh, we can do V-locks and all this other cool stuff we never had done. Um, and then just talking to people that we printed with, things like that. So we always wanted to have a standard size. So it'd be like little books you could keep. We'd just learn something new and then go to a different printer, like, oh, let's try web web presses cheaper and that kind of thing. And then in the early days too, we were it was all Xerox and printing. I doubt we did more than 500 copies and then later on i think definitely with indie 14 i think one else somewhere around there it started getting bigger and bigger and like i remember tower records was carrying it and they would order a thousand copies and i think it i forgot what i pressed one maybe it was three thousand which i you know 
Yeah, you had big distribution. Yeah, and then it all collapsed. (laughs) (laughs) There was a big distributor in um, Austin, too, that distributed all the record stores and little bookstores. And it's funny, as you look back now, I look at like the back sheet, like we would send copy, we would send a lot of copies out. Like anybody that submitted a cassette or artwork, always got a free copy. And we would mail all these out, but I think it was like $3 to mail it to Europe or, you know, we had a lot of European people in the UK and that was our biggest expense was printing, I mean, it's postage. Now it would be ungodly, you know? Well, in the early days, you know, uh, speaking of postage, the the first issue here is a a, a contact pamphlet of cassette and uh, mail art contacts. So was that your like intro to this stuff was through the mail art scene or how did you like what prompted the starting of it and and what were your ties to mail art? So a a lot of it for me was uh, I was doing tape trades and um, back in the day, like Robin Gristle had a newsletter and you would write people from that. And I was like, oh, I needed. Oh, there's somebody that lives in Germany or the UK. And um, you would just start. I started from there, just these contact sheets. And then the the uh, sort of second through fifth issues really seem to have a focus on uh, sort of fine artists and and uh, and of course some actionist stuff and like you know you got Stan Brackage, Kurt Crenn, but you've also got uh, Gunter Bruce, uh, Paul McCarthy. So it's it's the focus on music wasn't quite as much of a thing in, early as it was sort of the arts and and uh, periphery things to it, yeah. No, yeah, it was definitely kind of starting with film and art. I think it was in 80 or 81, I went to Houston and Kirk Crenn, who was a filmmaker, and they go, let's go to Houston. He's going to be there. And I was a big Carrie Voltaire fan. and All his films are silent. And he was playing the first Carrie Voltaire record. I was like, oh, my God, this is intense. So I met him and I said, hey, I'm starting this magazine. And it was going to be called Contact. That was what the issue was going to be. It was going to be tape artists visual artists and male artists, just this network of people, everybody was going to get a page. And and I said, hey, this would be cool. Maybe I'll do an interview with you. Well, he didn't speak, I mean, he spoke English, but just back in the day, and I said, I'll be moving to Austin. You will write me back. Well, he thought it was an invitation to come live with me. So he goes, hey, I'll be back and I'll be in Austin. And um, thanks for inviting me. So I thought, well, I get a house guest and a um, interview. So he stayed, he lived here in Austin for a couple of years, back and forth. And through him, I mean, I was interested in all the stuff because his film shows, you know, Otto Mule and he was going to Bruce and all these guys, which I was really interested in, Throbbing Bristle. There'd be different things like com transmission. So a lot of performance art I was really interested in. And all this, this whole world to me is unknown. And so you're trying to find sources, like what magazine has an interview with this guy? And you would write, oh, you should write so-and-so. He knows a lot about it. So it just kind of started from that. And the mail art was just different contacts in every country. Like, oh, he might know. You know, he's in Italy. He runs this event center, that kind of thing. And then I remember there was be these mail art shows. One was called Yellow. It was an Italian um, mail art show. So you submitted anything that was yellow. And I, that's, I met this guy, Philip Johnson in Liverpool, and he had contributed. So it's just you know, these weird connections that we would just kind of make by these events, if that, if that makes sense. And the Mel Art, what they would do is when they had a Mel Art show, everybody that submitted something, 
would get a catalog with all the addresses. So you would like, oh, wow, I don't know anybody in Estonia. I'll write this dude or I'll write this girl in East Germany. It'd be cool to know somebody in East Germany. And that was always my attraction. Plus, I mean, not just the art and everything, but to know people from different places and get the cool stamps. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And you were you were in Austin this at this time. Have you been Austin your whole life? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Fort Worth, you know, early on, but I moved to Austin, like, I think, 81. And I've been here since. And you were setting up shows then as well, or you were attempting to? Right before we hit record, you, you were talking about reaching out to people to set up shows. Yeah, so I think there was a guy, and um, so I moved here, and then early on, there was a guy that ran a magazine called Talk Talk. He, and again, some of these connections are with Robin Gristle and SPK and that kind of thing. And everybody would stop. He was the caretaker for Burroughs. And so a lot of people would come to visit. I think it's right. Yeah, Kansas City would go there to visit. And so he goes, hey, you know, we're going to do an SBK show. Would you want to help out? And I was like, oh, I don't have, I don't know anybody here. I have no money. I can't do that. It'd be great to do. But we were doing a um, film screen for Kirk Crenn. And I thought, well, just bring the live recording. We'll play it. So we would just do, that kind of started it. And then I, I think one of your podcasts, you're talking about Manny Thainer, you know, talking about Mickey Von Hassel. I mean, he was there early on. And so I can't remember the first shows we did, but he was definitely a contact. Like I said, I can't remember what the ones we did early on, um, but it just kind of evolved. Like we did Crash Worship. Um, and then just kind of as we got more and more, you know, then it was like we did Soviet France, Overdose Quark. Just everybody was coming through, and that's it. Just actually, it got beyond our means. Like I remember, we were contacted as like, "Hey, would y'all want to do Cocteau Twins?" And we're like, "Oh my <laughs> god, you know." And the guarantee was three grand, and we're like, "Oh my god, we don't have that kind of money. We can't do that." Of course, in retrospect, it would be outrageous. You know? <laughs> but we just, yeah, we did a lot of it, like you know, and stuff that never made money, like Bee Queen or. Just Anybody was coming through, and we had a good collection of, of contacts. So we we could do something in Austin. There were galleries or places that we knew that were real supportive. Dallas was Club Dada, where they were super friendly, let us do things. I mean, I look back, I can't believe they let us do the things we did. I mean, that's where Edie Burkale came from, but they were super supportive. And then in Houston, you had Commerce Street Artist Warehouse that would just like, sure, book them, bring them through. So we had these places, like, so if somebody wanted to come to Texas, we could guarantee you would have three shows, sometimes four. And we were in our 20s, and this was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and when you would have bands come through, you would then obviously get to to interview them or solicit them to, sure. to contribute something for the magazine or the label, right? Right. Or sometimes that would be done beforehand, and but and then just by meeting them, like, I would try to go to Europe when I could, and then you would meet the people and like, oh, you should come over. And, you know, so sometimes it'd be back and forth. How did you get in touch with uh, Philippe Fouché from T-Form? He's in the kind of the earlier issues of the magazine. Yeah, I think just through other contacts. I can't remember anything exactly. Just like I say, you would see different people and being referenced and you would just write them. And or they think it seemed like they submitted a bunch of stuff for review as well. Were you getting a lot of stuff to review? Oh yeah. yeah. And it, it, and that was also 
and there were different, a lot of people that would help out with the magazine and people's payment for helping doing the reviews was they got to keep what they wanted, you know, at the same time, you know, you got to review some of this, but it became like, I, it's hard to describe. Like we thought we had a handle on stuff and then you realized how much there was out there and it's just like, Oh, I thought I knew sort of the network and, um, it was exploded. So I'd go to my mailbox and there'd be like 50 things to review. And we'd also at the same time get kind of more, cause we're a magazine, you know, or, but we would just get like, you know, bizarre stuff to review, like, you know, the newest top 40, you know, like, so do we review this, not review it? We just got on these mailing lists. So we would just get tons of stuff that really didn't fit what we were doing. But you had like industrial nations. So we, when that started coming up and we'd get a lot of that and just like, and I think it, so it was a real, um, it was hard thing to get a handle on. Cause I kind of came from the male art aesthetic was like, if you submit something, you get recognized and you're part of the show or you're, if you submit some of the magazine, we're going to mention, but it got to the point where like, we have to curate something or we're just, we're, we're getting buried. And the other example I'll give you of that is like, I forgot what year it was. Uh, sorry, I think it's like 91. We did a, we thought, oh, we're going to do an exhibition of the cassette network. We're going to call it Undercurrents and do this huge thing, invite people to come here. And we were trying to get some arts funding and we got a little bit, but not enough to pay for everything. Um, so we sent out this kind of blanket mail out, mail out to everybody, like submit cassettes or artwork or whatever. And we just got tons. I mean, more than I ever imagined. There were just books of people. And so like um, the haters came, Robin James, Doss. There was like a, a, a small group of people, some folks from Houston and Austin, of course. And we thought, well, we're going to have this exhibition and three days of shows. But it really just blew our mind. It kind of exhausted us because we were like, I thought there were maybe a thousand you know, groups around the world. It's like, no, there's like 40,000. I don't know. That's just looking back. I think it just, we tried to attempt this mega thing and we just, Oh, this is bigger than we ever thought it was. Like there would be scenes in Brazil. Like there's, there's like 60 cassette artists in Brazil. Like how do we tackle this? You know, how can we even put it in context? Yeah, exactly. So it was super fun and, and I learned a lot, but I mean, that's like I say, when going down the wormhole of your podcast, it brings a lot of that back. And um, I just think about all these connections and a lot of misconnections as well. Cause you just, you could, yeah, you just didn't have the time and like, Oh, I wish I had known about, I just didn't know. So you came from the thriving gristle Cabaret Voltaire SPK right. world was your introduction to a lot of this when did you start to realize that there was this whole thing going on in America, like the haters or like Jeff German? When, when did that start to come on your radar more, you know, moving away from industrial to more noise yeah. types? I think it was just a gradual process of kind of seeing people that submitted and our contacts in just, Oh wow. There's a bunch. And we, and if somebody was from Texas, we were really interested. Like I remember there was JSL laboratories. There were some people in Austin doing things. I mean, one of the earlier ones was Radio Free Europe was there from Austin. 
and they were on the Thriving Gristle newsletter. I was like, oh, there's somebody else crazy as me. I got to need, I got to meet these people. So we were always interested and definitely more and more um, Then you would find groups of people like say um, hands Two. there was a gallery at the time too. Uh, God record gallery. I'm blanking, but there was like, there's a group of male artists that were in Phoenix. And then you had like, I forgot what years I'm saying, like sun city girls were doing things. There were these little, so you would kind of geographically in your head think of like, Oh, there's something going on here. And then, so you would just try to, and sometimes the people didn't know each other. But you might know, like, oh, you know. And I still remember getting that first Sun City Girls record. I was like, there's something, something here. Like, I don't, it's not maybe for me, but there's, I definitely recognize that something's going to come out of this. So. Well, and you mentioned before we started recording that you, in your teens, would write to bands uh, just reaching out. Yeah. Well, I I think, I mean, this sounds so, it is dating. So back in the day, I was like learning German and I was like really excited to like, you know, I was into Crawford and all the kind of things that the ones in Faust. I learned Faust because they were German. I was like, oh, I want to learn some more German. And I had a friend that was going to school with me and she was on this, they did these things called friendship books. And they went around like, it was like, there's this huge worldwide Bay City Rollers kid that that's how they connected. You would write somebody in Sweden or whatever. And she goes, I'll add you to this friendship book. And I said, oh, cool. I need, I want to know somebody in Iceland. Because I, I thought Icelandic stamps were cool. And I would have been like 16 or something. So this girl wrote me from Iceland and just would talk about her experiences. And, and it just, I know, I just think about like, that was my attraction was to try to meet people in different countries. And, um, and I got fairly good at writing letters. I liked it. And then when I got into the music, I was like, oh, just write them. I wrote, you know, David Thomas, Per Ubu, you know, Joy Division, Throbbing Gristle, Scritti Politti, just any band I was kind of into. Mm-hmm. And most of the time they would write back, which I was like, oh, this is great, you know, because they like, what's this kid in Texas writing us? Like, you know, you're some weird band in, um, in London, like, oh, somebody in Texas cares about the lines. Like, that's weird. I'll write him back, you know. So, I, you know, I guess I thought it was kind of fun. And I learned that you could also, not that I did it, but on purpose, but like you could, I would write embassies and they would just give you free books. I was like, oh, I'll write, I'll write the Czech embassy because I want to like get some, I don't know. It just started from there. I was really a male addict. So. That's amazing. <laughs> and I'm going to ask for GX, uh, oh, yeah. did you save the stamps? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Too much, yeah. I don't think I have anything here. Yeah. But the house, yeah. He's, GX still has a great collection. Oh, I yes. bet. I bet. Yes. And we did some stamps ourselves. Just there was a, a guy in and he lives in San Francisco, John Held was he ran a mail art gallery in Dallas. And he that's how I got exposed to like artist stamps. I go, oh, there's a whole other world here, you know, people that make their own stamps. And yeah, we did for, we did some for the shop too. That's so well, you know, and it so relates to What's written on the inside of the magazine, the the contact exchange right. document philosophy. And and I find that so inspiring. Did you, is that kind of your jumping off point for the zine? That was just my drive. I was always really curious what other people were doing. And that looks really interesting. I want to like with performance art, I was just like, I, there's something here and I can't put my finger on it. I want to explore it. Like I want to meet these people. 
And like one of them was um, Al Ackerman, who lived in San Antonio at the time. And I didn't really know him except except through Throbbing Gristle Hamburger Lady. He had wrote the lyrics for that. And I was like, oh, this guy. So we were writing about Mel Art. Mel Art. And he goes, oh, you should meet this really weird dude from London called Andre Stitt. He does a bunch of weird art you're probably liking. So we started talking about it. He was doing performance art. And he knew a lot of people like Stuart Brisley and all these people that I just read about, Alsha McKellen. And he goes, oh, I want to come and do a performance tour of Texas. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know. And it was more than I ever thought I would ever. It was amazing. Like, I think, um, you know, in Los Angeles, y'all had, you know, high performance. I don't know. If, it was a space called Highway. So it was really famous that performance artists from around the world would come there. So there's this whole world that I had no idea. And there were some people that were insanely great. And then you would see other ones. You're like, oh, you're just talking to a TV set. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> there must have been a lot of that though back then. Oh, yeah, there was. Bag. There was. <laughs> there was some stuff that was just I I can't even put into words. It just blew my mind. I guess that's you know like seeing Alex McKellen. He did this site specific thing in Newcastle, and I was lucky to be there at the time. And I was like, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. Like you would see some photos of like Joseph Boys, and you would try to imagine what that was like to see him with this dead bunny or things like this. And and then when you experience it, when it feels like it's real substantive and kind of hits you to the core, you're just like, there's something here. The same with music, you know, we all experience it. Like you'll hear something and then you hear something for the first time that like, say for me, it was Soviet France. And I was like, what is this? Like, this is insane, you know? So, and like I said, we all have those experiences where, yeah. You would start also releasing cassettes, eventually CDs, seven right. inches through ND. Right. When, when was the first, when were the first cassettes? So I think we did... We, the first cassette we did was ND7. We thought, oh, well, let's do a cassette issue. And there had been compilations and th things around. And I thought, this would be fun. We'll do, we'll invite, you know, cassette artists, male artists, visual artists, whoever, and would think, you know, stuff that would fit in D and like, you do it. So it was a, a mix, which I was really, we were really happy with. Like, this is great. Kind of at the time, you know, just the, the scope of what we were doing. And that was the very first one. And I think we were, there was AA magazine, which is Carl Howard. He was mostly doing uh, cassette releases and he goes, Oh, this is a few years later. We should do a collaboration. You pick some artists and I'll pick artists. And we thought, Oh, okay. So it kind of, it kind of started from that. And I very, one of, I was a big fan of PBK and a lot of other people, but I approached PBK and this is when CDs were pretty much started, but I thought, Hey, you don't have a CD out. You want to put something out. And so we, we want to do this cool letterpress. And I mean, we really didn't know what we were doing. We thought this would be cool. Let's just do it. And back then I forgot what the cost was, but a CD and packaging was maybe a dollar. And we were selling them for like, I think $10. And we put that out, and I remember like Stahlplot called and say, "Hey, send us another 50. And we were just like, we sold them really quickly. And I was like, 
oh man, this will finance the magazine. We could do these. It just <laughs> seems so easy. Mm-hmm. The first few releases, so we put out 500 copies or whatever. And it's like, this will finance the magazine because the magazine always lost money on shipping alone. And so that's what started it. And then we probably got too, the word aggressive or there, then there were things that didn't sell and you're like, oh, well, that's not as fun. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, well, I mean, I think for our first ones were like PBK and we had also known Vidnam Mana because he was also, he had done a collaboration with PBK and then Vidnam Mana who's like, oh, I've got another one. Do you want to put that out? And we're like, okay. Um, Mayor Tree, just there was just people we'd already been in contact with. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I, this is this is a favorite of nice. ours, yes. the Mayor Tree CD, and and so I was actually talking to a friend earlier today, and he said this is one of a, an early CD for him because of the packaging. Yeah. So I'm holding it up for our yeah. listeners. It's the it's the uh, Mayor Tree CD that's in a triangle right. package. And I for and so. I, how did this package come about? I forgot if it was through them or uh, or both of us. We had a, a place in town that did letterpress, so they could do like little cool packages, like we did it with Mayor Tree or Clay Creek. And the thing about the Mayor Tree, we thought it was awesome. Like this is so clever, and this is great. Um, but shipping them was always a problem because they would bend. Record stores hated them. And, and, retrospect, <laughs> and in retrospect, I know why. Like, where do you put this thing? You can't put it on a shelf. You put it with seven inches, you know. For certain shops, like, say, Stahlplot or whatever, it's great, you know. But, um, yeah. So that was a super fun one. I loved it. And there's also, like, I think, I'm getting forgetting his name, but there was, like, they did these holograms. And so with the, oh, okay, the first 50 or whatever, we'll have a deluxe edition. We'll have this hologram with it. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that. What what exact? What exactly does that look it's like? It's the same thing. It's, it's like a little square, like hologram with their with their logo. That we just we just okay. placed it in the center. It wasn't anything. Yeah, you know, it was just like a little bit limited. That's exciting. I love holograms. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> but that was a fun project. I thought it was great, and we were trying to be upfront with artists. I forgot like they got thirty percent in copies and things like that. But it, it just got to this point of like, we didn't know how to run a label and it became just kind of another thing that we had to kind of keep track of. And it became like this albatross, like, cause like I say, certain ones would sell certain ones wouldn't, you know, and we did a lot of trades with other labels too. You know, you also did a seven inch series as well. Yeah. That was, um, that was going to be like, because at the time there were a bunch of like little indie bands that were doing seven inches. We thought, oh, I think I forgot our first one. I think it was Trespassers. No, it was Left Hand, Right Hand, or Blue Star. We friends we knew in Holland, and we thought, oh, this would be kind of fun. Let's let's play with this. And it was, and, and in retrospect, some of it was kind of dumb. We were talking about nod, like you know, deal. Oh yeah, you nod your head to this, and so it was going to be this nod series, and it was fun, kind of learning the process of how to do it. But they were never like successful you know and we would i think we printed like 500 or something the factory press was probably the most successful because that was a texas band yeah and then the cassettes we did with fragment was going to be an extension kind of the magazine so it was going to be two artists that we would link in our heads maybe not together but like it would be like chop chop and ken montgomery for some reason, we associated them too. Like, let's do an issue with them. We'll do an interview with both, and they'll split a cassette. And the idea was to have these volumes of cassette artists. Like, you could 
pull it off the shelf and read about them. But they're not, I don't know if you've seen any, but they're not very durable because <laughs> it's all spray mounted. Um, and are those like the, is that like the, the Francisco Lopez, Ali yeah, uh, split? Yeah. Is that, that's all part that's of that? Part of Jeff, Grinke, Jeff Grinke, I think has yeah, one, Yeah, we've right? only seen pictures. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I w- there was just so, I mean, y'all know Anomalous, I guess y'all have heard of them. He was, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he originally was based in LA and then he moved to Seattle, but he had this, he would order like, crazy and i was like oh you know he's selling these <laughs> so, and he was like oh send me 10 of fragment three or whatever and we sold them so cheap i think it was like six bucks or something you know but they're really hard to kind of mail everything was uh spray mounted or super glued you know or uh glue gunned and the idea of it was if i did it now it would be definitely a more practical you know durable place to do it but it would take us like an hour to assemble five, you know, things like that. So well, I love that everything is a group effort. I'm just picturing like your epicenter and one apartment. With yes, lots yeah, of yeah. People. So who, who all was part of, of Andy, who was, who in your mind were the core. Yeah. And who is Honoria? Honoria. Was, Honoria. Oh, Honoria and she's a good friend of mine. She was always around. And I said, why don't you, you're more in touch with the mail art. Cause as I was doing the magazine, I was, I wasn't as involved, but we'd get tons of mail art listings. I thought, would you do the mail art listing for? She goes, Oh, I'd love to. So she would keep up with that. And it would be like the center, you know, our problem with that, she would do it, but by the, we would always push back the dates like, Oh, we don't have the cash ready or we're not ready for this interview is not done. So we're not going to go to print until, you know, a month from now. So she'd have to keep redoing it. Like, well, those deadlines are going to pass by the time people get them. But yeah, she's great. She did a Mel Art show here and a lot of mutual friends. And she's traveled a lot. Uh, it was her. And then, so Michael Northam and his girlfriend at the time, Amanda, lived just down. They got a house down the street from me. And they're from Indianapolis. Then it became like John Grisnick, uh, Seth Neal, uh, Jeff Fila. Then Andy Carabetta, who worked, then he went to work for Pitchfork. Just, you know, my roommate at the time was Rob Foreman, who did a lot of the interviews. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like this evolving, it became more and more people, which was great because certain people could take care of certain things. And um, yeah, but probably it was probably me and Rob for a long time. And definitely, like I say, Michael was there for a long time too. What were some of the first noise performances you saw was the hater did you see the haters yeah i saw the haters early on i'm trying to think there was a guy that um bill yeager that lived here i think some is coming out was called undercurrent that was his group and he was really into noise stuff and i'd kind of you know heard parts about i didn't know a lot of it but he kind of educated me on a lot of stuff and i was like oh this is great i didn't know this this is really powerful that kind of thing as far as live stuff, I can't, I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, I'm just, I'm blanking. I mean, there'd be certain ones, but I think seeing John Duncan the first time. Um, yeah. And then like, Oh, tell us about that. Well, he, he came to, um, we're not seeing, I'd known him because we had done an interview with Paul McCarthy and my end with him was he had done an interview with Kurt Krent. And so I was like, Oh, I'm going to interview you. And a friend that ran the magazine rock, was is a UK magazine, had done an interview with John Duncan. And of course, they both, in LA, they did all this crazy performance art. And, and I learned more about him. And he was pretty much ostracized. 
And I wrote John when he was in Japan and he was doing, uh, was it radio code and all this kind of cool stuff. So we started this correspondence and he was friends of Chris and Cozy and, you know, we had a lot of connections and I, it was just really kind of an interesting, I always just had all these questions to explore and I wrote him and he kind of confessing things and he would do the same with me. And so we got into this dialogue and I was super curious, like, I've got to interview you. Like we have to talk about blind dates. We have, I want to know, you know, just really where all this is coming from. And so, yeah, that's, I was, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. I was just super intrigued by him. Understandably. So so. what was was his performance here? Like he did it. I'm trying to think if I saw him before that, I guess maybe not. It was, so he came to Austin and we was upstairs in a gallery. We, I don't know how we did this back then, but he was projecting films. And then we had these huge lights that would just flash out and blind the audience. Like when the music was intense. So I don't know how I could get away with it now, but they were just, I think he was showing like homoerotic eight millimeter movies or something. And people came out of it just like, Oh, this is not what I thought. And these grinding flashes of light. It was just, it was kind of intense. Um, And then we did Houston but it was kind of a little bit different and the audience, it was like kind of a warehouse space or a lot of interference and stuff. So, and, and it's also hard, some of those shows, cause I was kind of watching the front door. So I didn't get to pay to immerse myself mm-hmm. as much. But, John Duncan's good for intensity. Yeah. And then I saw him here. He came through here to gallery not too long ago. And it was the same kind of like, he, I think he had six to eight CD players. And it was, again, just like, um, I was like, wow, okay, he's got it, you know, for me. I think that the one that I really loved, because I knew him for, like I say, the kind of performance art and this, the stuff that he was doing. And then when he was doing music, I was like, oh, okay, that's, okay, sure. And I think it wasn't Touch that put out something called Send. I might have this wrong. It was like yeah, a box. packaged in a, in a mailer, yeah. Mailer. And so the idea, I can't remember now, but I think it was the idea was like you listen to it and you just send it on to somebody else, which I don't know if anybody ever did. But I really loved it. I was like, oh, wow, this, there's something here. Um, but I always liked that a lot. So, yeah. And he had different, he was friends, like he lived in Udaden, Italy. I can't remember. But he was involved with people that I knew as well. So we did just be these weird connections. What were some other shows that you facilitated around that time that you were that you did the John Duncan well, show around the, that era? When, like I say, listening to the with Mickey von Hauswolf, that that tour for me was amazing. Like, um, oh, you did that. You yeah. you you booked a show for yeah, that tour. So they came over. It was uh, Faust Bilting and um, Zabinda Karkowski and Halfer Trio, and I was like, yeah, we'll do this for sure. Wow. And they had funding from the Swedish government, I think, to help with the tour. And we did, I know we did Mexicarta, which is a museum here, uh, Club Dada, and we did, yeah, Commerce in, in Houston. And each show was kind of different. Faust had like these, um, God, they were wearing like these metallic skirts that were connected and they would twirl around and would make contact and sparks would fly and, you know, music. Um, Half a trio was different every time. Like one time, he, I think in Austin, he was just behind the big scene desk. Um, so some people didn't even know that was the show. <laughs> and then Zbigniew Karkowski had built this kind of infrared cage that he would cut signals out. It was kind of like a performance dance. 
anyway, it was just this great stuff I'd never seen. And I was like, oh, this is this is great. You know, what a great combination. And we did radio interviews like Houston. And you had a couple of cool radio shows down there. Um, yeah, it was like a lot of fun, a lot of fun memories. So actually, I think we talked about it with Mickey, but there's a VHS of the Dallas yeah, stop of that finally, tour that was issued. Yeah, those guys would do certain shows. That was kind of fun. Um, yeah, to kind of I've seen that is because like, we we did videos of some of it, but a lot of times we never did. So sometimes to see stuff later on is pretty crazy. The one thing, like you know, rest in peace, uh, Karkowski. He was definitely an intense personality, but he was he was great. I, I really loved what he was doing. And um, Jerry Hunt, he was a good friend. He goes, I want you to meet America's most most amazing composer. This is Jerry Hunt. And I'd heard of his name, but I didn't know he lived in Dallas. And we had always, this is another kind of misconnection. It was like, I learned about him way later. And I was like, we talked about doing an interview with him. He's right next door to us. We definitely should investigate. But it was just like, we had this meeting and we were going to talk and we just never happened. And um but it was a, I think it was in Dallas. And I, I thought I told him, I said, damn, it was incredible. I loved what you did. That was really impactful. And he goes, it was shit. And he was really, and I was like, what? I never had anybody that he goes, no, that was total shit. And I was like, Oh, oh I'm sorry. Like I, for me, that was maybe what you do other places, but that was incredible. And then, um, oh, the other one too was uh, Francisco Lopez came. He'd come one time before, mm-hmm. but we did one where, I think we had like six speakers or eight speakers in this room. It was a quiet, um, um, small theater. And he was in the center, but everybody faced, faced away from him. So you were in the dark. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Like, and he goes, yeah, I don't want people watching me fiddle. I want people to pay attention to what's around them. And I thought that was super intense. And people, you know, like I say, some of these shows, there might be 30 to 50 people that would come out. but. You know, we'd all talk about it for months. Like, oh, did you go see that? That was amazing, you know. And then you would do other shows that were more, like I say, Soviet France or like I say, hey, Half a Trio was pretty well known. So it'd just be, a, you know, there'd be a couple hundred people to come out. And it's like, wow, this is this is crazy. You mentioned radio. Were you involved in college or local radio? My, no, I wasn't, but I had friends that were. So my roommate, we, he would facilitate like, oh, let's get you on, you know, uh, UT radio or and Houston had a couple shows. There was public and there was Rice University. I think it was called the SM show. And basically they would it was great publicity. Like if you were if you would get on the radio, it would you would guarantee another 50 people would come out because like, oh illusion of safety's in town. Like this is what they sound like. And and there'd be really fun banter. I think I can't remember her name, but she would always just kind of insult anybody that was there. It was just kind of fun. I guess that's why they called it the SM show. But it was pretty, you know, it was pretty fairly popular with Chuck from Vinyl Edge. Had a, he might still have it, but there was a show there that he would do kind of experimental stuff. And you'd be driving around Houston and it's like, oh, Nocturnal Emissions on the radio. Cool. You know, and you nice. kind of get, yeah, you, you kind of get spoiled by that. But there would just be small pockets in every city. There would be like a group of people that would help get the word out and like the bigger the artists were like say Leisure and King Dots or something which we did we didn't book other people would but people would kind of come out and then you would try to promote your show like oh by the way we're bringing Bee Queen you know or something so 
Well, how are you promoting the magazine around this time? Were you selling them at shows? Were you, was it just through the distributors or how are you getting this out and about? Mostly just, we would do a lot of trade. So, so we would hope like there might be a mention like Backsheet 5 or something that would, and then other magazines, like you would send, you would send review copies like Unsound or whatever. If we did our events, we always put the, we'd have the magazine out too. And like the other bands would have their, I think the most, I, yeah, I remember doing a, I think Soviet France was like the craziest because they it was kind of hard to find their stuff. So people just would come to the merch table and just it's like, oh, y'all sold like a thousand dollars worth of merch, you know. Um, and we'd have the magazines out there. So. When did you see things changing more from print uh-huh. to the internet, and how? What was your feeling about that when things started switching over to digital? From physical. I think at first it was wide open. Like I remember like getting our first fax machine. I was like, oh, wow, we can do interviews this way. This is amazing. And then if email, it kind of opened up. So all the folks that, you know, you had to wait one to two weeks to get a response from Holland or whatever. And now it's all immediate. Like this will be great. We can have IRC channels and we can talk about it. And for some reason, there was a breakdown. Like it was just like, eh. I remember like there was a, there was like an IRC chat and I think it was like, cause industrial nation was a magazine and there was a, a industrial nation yeah. IRC chat. I was like, Oh, this would be cool. We can learn about, you know, the tours on tour. Or we can exchange contacts, the things that we would do in the mail all the time, like real practical stuff. And it just became kind of this weird, like, Oh, there's a bunch of 12 year olds here. Like what's going on? Like you did, I mean, not to insult it, but it just became, kind of got dumbed down for some reason. And a lot of people that were in it couldn't figure it out. Like, and there were certain forums that were, you know, um, where you felt like the conversation could, you know, it, it would just, it would still happen. But there was just other channels where I remember like, ah, this is kind of odd. I, I couldn't, we couldn't put our finger on it. Part of it was great because like emails and things could happen so much faster. But there was something that was kind of missing. I don't know. Maybe it was just the ease of access. I don't know. Right. There's a derailment factor. Yeah, I'm I don't sure. know. And the, but it was great because then you could meet a lot of people. There was a magazine, in, a space here called Fringeware. They were really into like the internet and up and coming things. And we connected with them. They would have events. We did a joint event. So there was a lot of this kind of energy. But again, it was kind of like when we did the cassette show, it was so much that you couldn't put your finger on it. Like, I don't know. And then people were like, Oh, there's a lot of noise. You know, it's like, you can't discern kind of what you need to get out of it. Well, you kept the magazine really diverse through all the issues. I mean, you kept a uh, focus on performance art and I mean, on mail art, even some of the later issues have sort of mail art specials. And, and then obviously with all the music, I mean, you've got stuff like, this heat, right, but right. you also got you got Francisco Lopez or Jim O'Rourke. How important was that to you, or what kind of balance did you try to strike between all of your interests in the magazine? Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I think Jim O'Rourke. I mean, obviously, Rob had gone to Chicago, and he goes, oh, "I want to do an interview with Jim O'Rourke." Oh, yeah, great. I mean, and me and Jim had written. He was actually going to be in a fragment issue. We thought, oh wow, and he goes, "I know this a guy Warren Fisher. This might be a good one." I go, sure. And, but it never happened. Then we were trying to do one with John Duncan. There were a bunch of things that started to happen, but it never, you know, for whatever reason, didn't happen. And years later, I thought about the Jim O'Rourke one. I was like, man, that would have been cool to do. Because at the time, I think he was doing releases on Touch. 
And it was later when I found out Warren Fisher was like, oh, that was Fisher Spooner. Like, that would have been really cool. <laughs> but we would always talk about it. And I remember, like, Michael was traveling. Like, somebody was always kind of traveling somewhere. So, like, oh, I met this, um, like, he went to Italy, and I met this instrument builder. So we would just always try to, like, have, like, performance or visual in, in some there would be like some key interview artist, like I think, and sometimes it'd be themes like, Oh, let's just do the German issue. Cause we're doing Austin's teachings and something, you know, or it would never be like really that hard, but we just like, Oh, this just kind of has a German theme or this has Belgian. Cause we're talking to D media and Fox popular and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we just always kind of definitely always want to have some Mel art thing there. We'd try to think of some key, Mel art figure um yeah it just it was pretty conscious and then there would always be some interview like i say like with this heat that would always been somebody i wanted to interview for a long time and i thought oh, okay that'll be kind of this will make the issue and we'll build around it so you went to, to until 1999 and you said there was about a half an issue that was being worked right. on for after what ended up being the last issue. It, you know, we, you know, we, we've talked to Seymour glass as well about banana fish and it does seem to be, especially with magazines, the amount of work I think is something that can't be overstated. Right. I think for a magazine yeah. Yeah. and you know, was it, was it just a combination of everything just at a certain point? It was, man, this yeah. is, I don't know if we can. Yeah. It just, it just, it, it, I mean, each issue basically once a year, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of years where there was two, two yeah. I think, I but mean, and it, was, it was silly. We'd always like, Oh, let's do one every, I think one time we thought, let's make the magazine thinner. We can get this out timely or let's do it quarterly. <laughs> that never happened, you know? But yeah, I think it was kind of yearly. Like I say, I think one time we got two out. Yeah, because sometimes you'd have one thing done and it would take, you know, a year till they, the person saw it. And you said the magazine never always basically lost money. Yeah. And so I guess I am curious how I mean, was was the majority of the money from ads? And then once the once the issue's out and you're selling it, did you really see money from that or was it already kind of tied up in expenses like how exactly that work i actually just don't yeah, really I mean, the, understand the ad thing would help like it would give us seed money to kind of I, I, and i'm trying to think of like how much it would cost to print like like a dollar maybe a copy so if you're doing three thousand copies it's three thousand dollars and so maybe we'd get six hundred dollars for for print or ads because like we never really wrote it all out like i mean we just we weren't i wasn't really good businessman and then you would wait for like, oh, we're going to get a, a distributor check from fine print. It's going to be $1,400. So we nearly have it all. So let's go ahead and do it. And like I say, sales from like the the other magazines or subscriptions. Yeah, it all just kind of rolled up. But it was never seemed like we were ever got ahead. I mean, it wasn't like, a, I mean, that was never the goal anyway. Like I think at one time, right, of course. like, oh man, this would be great to do this full time. But um, yeah, it was always just, yeah. Kind of cool. Well, I'm so glad that you kept at it. <laughs> yeah, really. But there's, uh, you know, we've talked about, you know, now, like I say, a lot of it was, I was working on the store. Like, I, I think about like Ron Lassard, like, man, I'd really like to talk to you more now. Cause like how you did what you did 
is insane to me. Oh yeah. Like, you were doing the store and putting out like, I don't know how many CDs or records into just like constantly. And I remember yeah. back in the day, my old store, we were, we would call each other and I said, Hey, maybe we could do some trades, you know, do you, where are you getting, you know, United diaries from and that kind of things. And I remember like, he was like, I need you two records. I sold a bunch of, you know, cause he sold a bunch of used vinyl. <laughs> I mean, he obviously sells well, yeah. tons of other stuff, uh-huh. but for what he did, I think it's amazing. Like where he was located. I don't know the, you know, it wasn't like in a major city and people would make the trek. Lol. Have you ever, have you, have, no, have you ever been? been? And I guess. <laughs> yeah. It was a very small it's town. North of Boston, yeah. Right. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the direction, but it's, it's outside of Boston, but it's, but it's definitely, you got, it's a destination, you know, Mm -hmm. you, if you're, you, you make a trip out of it, kind of, it's not just around the corner. And he was going to tour and it never, it never happened. They talked about doing a meal bolio tour. Maybe he did later, but. uh, Oh, he did multiple, especially. But I don't know if he did. I don't know if he came down here. I can't remember. Um. But I look back in retrospect, like how he did what he did. I just think it's amazing. And, you know, everybody remembers those RRR catalogs. You know, and Anomalous was the same oh, way, you know, like how, yeah, he, absolutely. how he did what he did. And, um, yeah. And this is like, and I don't think Ron maybe later got a fax machine, but I know he hated the internet and just, you know, it's him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, we always talk about Ron being a, one of the biggest, if not the biggest reason why we're oh, all yeah, here yeah. and yeah. why this is happening. Yeah. 100%. You know, that's why so our, our main people. noise extra logo is that's the Ron great. That's great. handwriting because <laughs> it's just, he was, it's such a, such a inspiration, right. such a figure, especially back yeah. then. You know, like, like you said, how does he do this? But, but again, I do know that, yeah, the, the store, you know, while of course it's, there's, we there's, think of it as a noise, noise but no, it was the yeah. used vinyl was still what, you know, he would still have just people coming in to buy regular right, rock right. records. Oh, yeah. The other person, did you remember we run across artware? They were based in Wiesbaden in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah. Um, and I got to meet him. I traveled, but his goal. And again, we, we, you look back and you think of like, we had these goals, like, I want to have one archive copy of every cassette in experimental thing coming out. And it would just be like his bedroom just like covered in stuff. Like he would get, because he was doing distribution kind of like Ron was, but for, mm. for Europe and just the amazing, an insane amount of stuff. And like nobody slept back then. Everybody drank coffee and just stayed up and wrote letters. And, but he was an important figure too. And then Donna, is it Donna Clem? I think she's the one that kind of took over. Yeah. She passed away not too long ago. Like I say, it's funny looking back now and like how they did it. Um, but there's some people like the, I look at like the haters, like GX, like he's never stopped. And, PBK is always constant. Um, there's a place in San Francisco called Revolver uh, or Midhaven. They do, you know, yeah, they oh do yeah. distribution. I bought from them when they were called Systematic. I bought my first This Heat record, you know, when I was like 18. So it's the same. But I don't know the guys at all. Like you would think I would, but, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, we had, we just had South by Southwest here. And so Jeff Travis, who, founded rough trade he'll come in the store you know and i'm like and he knows everybody and i'm like oh this is so crazy like i'll just you don't know how important those singles were to my life like you know <laughs> meddler banes blew my mind and you know but yeah to me that's what it's sometimes it comes around full circle for me so it's kind of interesting 
Well, and yet you, well, speaking of which you, you own a store, yeah, right? End of an right. ear. And, and when did you start end of an ear? So I think it was mm, 2000, two, <laughs> sorry, 2005, I think, 2005, Okay. Yeah. And was there something before that? Cause you mentioned yeah. sort of a store that was, that was the sort of part of contributed to yeah. ND stopping as a magazine. So, yeah, we started a store called, uh, it's called 33 degrees is me and this uh, other guy named Bob Coleman. And he was kind of really into like garage rock and stuff like that. And psychedelic. And I was more into like experimental and I had gone to like these records, which is a teeny little spot in London where you could buy Henry Cow and all the weird stuff. And we had a teeny little store, like maybe 250 square feet. And I thought, Oh, we should do it. Like these records, like, all the CDs are like um, bookshelves because there's no room to really display them. What's the store that was in Scotland? Um, David Keenan and Heather. Volcanic Tongue. They came to the same kind of idea they did because they had limited space. I was like, oh, we're going to do that too. And I was like, yeah, it makes sense because you're like cramped space. You don't have room. And we would do in stores in there, which I look back and it was ridiculous, you know. (laughs) Because <laughs> um, nobody could really. This is in the nineties. Yeah, I think we started. We opened the small little store mm-hmm. in ninety five, and then we opened the bigger location on, on Guadalupe. I think a couple years later, and we were trying to do. That's when all this stuff like tortoise and seeing cake and all that stuff was really building momentum. But we were doing. We did a bunch of cool in stores. I remember like KK Knoll. We did an in store with him. There were a couple of multi. Yeah. There was definitely mm-hmm. contacts I had from ND, and I thought, oh well, now I can make advantage of this and like we did an oval in store just kind of like oh now we kind of have the freedom to do it at the same time you had to be aware of like well we got to pay the employees and we got to pay the bills so you know i mean we were never like oh it's just you know we're just going to sell radio head here but selling radio head helps so yeah it's a weird line because you know there's some stuff people probably think i know like and but blake who's my partner here you know, he probably knows more of the classic rock, but somebody comes, some older guy comes up to me and like, what Proko Harum song? I, like, I have no idea. Like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> but I can talk to you, but I can talk to you about, oh, you conjugate, you know, so, or these weird Bollywood records, but yeah. I can, I, I can give you yeah. a hands to recommendation. And the early store too, like when we were, we did a bunch of trades when we first started. So we, like again with Mickey von Hasselhoff, like we knew Phil Kagan and we would, so the labels I knew, it's like, oh, now we have a lot, I can sell them here for you. So Giancarlo Tony Needy and AMN, we would get that stuff in. And I was like, oh my God, we've sold Gino Car- <laughs> Giancarlo Tony Needy LPs. That's insane, you know, because it was more intimate to our smaller store. And so somebody would come in and like, mm-hmm. you know, what's weird? What should I get? And I was like, oh, well, here's some, um, I'm trying to quiet artworks like this is this label or room, you know, generations unlimited and stuff like that. But at that period, it was like things were kind of changing too. So certain labels that I knew, like the sound, sound of pig, like I never like, Oh, let's have 300 sound of pig cassettes here. Um, or that kind of thing. So it was, you know, like I say, it was, it was, it was kind of like trying to go between the two. Well, I'm just thinking about, 
in the underground, all the people that you've influenced. Uh I mean, Ron has really done that out there, but between your record stores and even releasing VHSs Uh and your ND magazine, like, you know, the underground's like this mycelium fungus under a forest, like sending messages. You don't see it, but it's helping the whole thing grow. But like, it's really staggering just thinking of all the people that you connected. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the thing. There was something that happened, like, it was always really gratifying when, like, you could, in your head, you were like, you should know this guy. And then it made, and then they yeah. did this project, and you're like, oh, that's great. I mean, I, you weren't looking for gratification or credit. You were just like, that's natural that that would happen. So, and the same that happened to me, people just, like I say, with Al Ackerman, like, you should meet this weird guy in London. You know, we've been friends for decades, so... You know, so you'll never forget it. It's like, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll always, you know. And like I say, just as time marches on, you think about people that you've made contact with. and Like Al Ackerman, I remember going into his house in San Antonio and it's like, he would just put his letters on the walls. It's like letters from Christo and Rauschenberg <laughs> and just like, and now he's like, Dude, these cool. are worth, it's worth a fortune, you know, but, you know, but back then you just didn't pay attention. You know, I mean, you did, but you didn't think of what it is now so, yeah. oh totally you, you at the time it was it, it you know you're just living it's, it. yeah, it's a lot yeah. Different. yeah. yeah. It, it's always so funny when you go to a, a non-maniac's house and they're like why are you going through my records and books like yeah, what are you yeah, doing yeah. Like, why what, wait, what are we supposed to I'm do i'm trying yeah, not yeah, to be know. rude excuse me <laughs> yeah, i'm appreciating is, your stuff <laughs> yeah it, I, it'd be rude if we don't run right, your right, records yeah. i think <laughs> <laughs> have you considered Making a collection right. of ND magazine. Where, where, what are you thinking? Just in this time now, yeah, the, looking the, back and there everything. There was one that I think there was a touch and go zine that I saw a few years ago. We talked about. There's been a couple other yeah. ones, like compendiums, and there was a there was a Kurt Crin retrospective that's my. We got a catalog from it, like from Austria. And what they had done was just repro- They just photocopied the interview and just had it in the catalog. I go wow, that's super cool. Because we had always talked about maybe we should just, you know, get rid of some of these really bad typos and retype it and kind of fix it up. And then the other part of it was like, yeah, just put it like it, no, it's part it of together. It. Warts and all. So it was like always, and you know, there's, we've talked about it and just like, you know, there would be the section with performance art and metal art and music and sound. And then again, this comes into the metal art thing was like, everything would have to be included. So how big does that be? Well, do we have the reviews in there? Some people would like that. Some of those reviews are so bad. Um, I don't know if you've ever read them, but we were always. Well, what do you th- What do you think are bad about? Oh, uh, we didn't have. We were just trying to. I mean, sometimes there would be ones that I felt great, like we put a lot of thought in it. We were really trying to, mm-hmm. um, you know, explain what this was, and so sometimes that's successful. And other times it's just like you're just trying to get it out, like. Yeah, here a ceiling fan. Yeah, great. You know, I mean, you weren't trying to diss it, but it just you were just trying to get it, get it out. You know, and sometimes we were just with misspellings and just uh, you know. But again, it was just you know time constraints and you know. I think I think a thing that would be incredible that you have to keep in are the ads because I think ads are looking back at old zines are some of the most invaluable pieces of history for sure. And you, it's the way, you know, seeing what comes out, we always love the, the upcoming 
releases that uh, never yeah, did right, come right, out. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like, oh, whoa, what, what, that never came out. No, we're still reading ads from 20 yeah. years ago going, 30, oh, I got to look years that ago. up. Yeah. And so, no, I, I, yeah. You know, the, the Spectrum magazine did a compendium and oh, yeah. it's just exact how right. it was. And, you know, I do, I do love that. And I think I, there's something about magazines, zines, print material from then that it's just so invaluable. And, just these historic documents. Yeah, it's part of the culture. No, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Now we've we've talked about some ideas. I think eventually something's going to happen. Um, there might be like a there was a mirror site for Holland, but you know the Internet Archive. I was like, oh yeah, it's still there. You can look at the the website for the magazine. And yes, so, yeah. And yeah. Michael had done all that, which was great. I still think it's a great website. Uh, it's really clever, and um, you know, but. Uh, yeah, we just uh, there's been a couple issues I saw that were like you know online, like I think it was like ND three, and it's like oh cool, so I scanned it and put it online. I don't know if that's still there, but yeah, somebody had actually volunteered about doing that, but then it's like, oh, here's a lot of work, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but scanned it and put it online. And then, yeah, and then there's some individual articles on I think like the Jeff Grinky interview. I believe we I believe there's a Jeff Grinky interview, right? Yeah. Yeah, we that I think we we found that cool, archived cool. as well as a, I believe Jeff German right. as well. So there's definitely individual articles mm-hmm. that okay, are up yeah, yeah. here and there, but it would be great to see everything. Sure. Yeah, sometimes I, I guess at some point I always think when I'm at the record store, I always think about like, man, there's certain artists that just like nothing's in print. Like there's not, um, well, like Soviet France, for instance, it's not. You know, Carrie Voltaire, their their catalog is usually available. SPK, mm-hmm. no. You know, there's a lot of things that people reference. Um, and just like, I mean, there might be an expensive edition that maybe you've got, but it's just a random person's reading about, you know, whatever. Oh, you he conjugate yeah. or clock DVA even, like <laughs> anti-group. It's like, yeah, you can't get it. I mean, you can find it, but it's nice to have the, the actual document and and I always think about that with the the magazines. There's certain issues, like I say, the this heat one I think is great. The teachings, there's a really good one we did with Carly Schneeman, and you know, and like I say, some of these people are passing away, like Carly Schneeman. I was like, man, this is such a great. She didn't talk about this. I mean, she has in other interviews, and it's gotten reprinted in books. But part of me is like, I wish this was kind of out there so people could just read the stories, you know. Mm-hmm. So, do you have a copy of every single issue? You have a copy. Yeah, of yeah. We just saved an issue. We saved one issue, and there's some libraries that have them all. And there's a, I think, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Somebody from Smithsonian at one time was going to digitize it all. I'm sure there's some copies somewhere, but yeah, but yeah, but it's yeah, it's just the nature of time, and you're just like, man, I hope somebody gets to see it. <laughs> so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, you did it yeah. for nearly. I'm just saying two decades. Let's, two just, decades. let's just say two decades. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're just saying we're giving it a clean two decades no. with ND magazine. And what a what a great no. thing that we have that we can still hunt sure. for. Hopefully, maybe someday have a nice compendium, yeah. Nice collection yeah. to to yeah. to have it. But it really has been so great to get to sure. talk to you. It's it's what a what a great addition to underground experimental noise art culture that you were 
so that yeah. you spearheaded. And so we thank for you sure. so much for that. Connecting, exchanging, documenting. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years. By Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.